All right, the uh, kids can go to Children's Church. You might want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. I know it might just be falling there, but um, if you've been with us lately, we kind of got trapped in chapter 16 because it's too good. I don't want to leave. But we're moving forward. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we bring your word into view, we just pray that you'd help our minds and hearts to focus on it with the commitment that it deserves to be scrutinized and you scrutinize us by your Holy Spirit, Father, in the light of these words. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've been looking at this incredible conversation, this occasion when Peter went from the heights of faith to wretched faithlessness in a very short period of time. One minute he's confessing Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and a little later Jesus is explaining to the apostles for the first time that he has to go and suffer and die, and Peter rebukes him. He rebukes the Son of God, he just, the man he just declared to be the Son of God. You surely shall not die. This will not happen to you. That, no, I will not permit it. And Jesus, when Peter gave the first confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus commended him. He credited that confession, however, to the gift of God. And he said, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. So that's where that came from. And the rebuke that Peter gave Jesus contradicting what the Son of God said, Jesus called that satanic. So here's Peter being enlightened by heaven with a great truth and serving the ends of Satan on the same day. I mean, right at the same time. And in telling Peter that his words were satanic for denying God's word, Jesus gave this really helpful explanation as to why it was such a horrible thing to say. This shall not happen to you. What's so bad about that? It's a good wish, right? Well, Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And that's in verse 23 there. Peter had the word of God straight from the Son of God, and he denied it. He said it couldn't be true. He was against it. So Jesus kindly points out to him what his problem is. Well, maybe a little brusquer than kind, but he makes it really clear. By, by saying, get behind me, Satan, he's saying, you've got to see what you're doing here. You are actually serving the other side when you go against what I'm saying to you. But Jesus tells him, he says, you're putting your mind on man's interest not God's interest. And that's what men do. In fact, that is our biggest problem. Putting our mind on man's interest rather than God's interest. And, and you know, man-made religion, all the religions of the world, that's what they're all about. God or the gods or the powers behind nature or our ancestral spirits, they all have to be manipulated or appeased in some way so that we will have good fortune. Whose interests are in mind there? Mine. 
my family, my community, myself, man's interests. It's never about the gods. It's always about us in all these religions. It's not, how can I serve you, Zeus? It's how can I get your favor, Zeus, so that you will be kind to me and bless me. What do I have to do to make the gods happy or my ancestors happy to, to uh, protect myself from evil things? That's man's interests. If you follow Christ for that reason, if you follow Jesus for that reason, to accrue divine favor so your life will be a little bit more manageable, you're probably going to be in for some really big disappointments because that's not what it's about. Not only that, you really, if you think that way, you don't even have a basic grasp of what following Jesus as a Christian means because it isn't about that. Well, today you're going to find out what it means. And I'm going to start by just saying this. This is pretty simple. You exist for God. God does not exist for you. He is the center of all things. You are not the center of all things. He is infinitely greater than we are in every way we can even think about existence. It's, it's actually a kind of madness that human beings think that we are the center of things and that God exists to serve us. That's, that's the most ridiculous thing to think, and yet most people feel that way about religion. And that, that perfect man, Jesus, lives in perfect conformity with this great truth that God is above all things and he is to be served and man exists for him and as a man Jesus of Nazareth was a hundred percent a hundred percent sold out for God that's how he conducted his entire life to serve his father and Matthew describes what Jesus started to tell the disciples in verse 21 of Matthew 16 he said from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus is going to follow this path that God has laid out for him and it is a path of suffering and a path of death and a glorious resurrection. But before the glorious resurrection, horrible torture and death. That comes first. Now, all of that is for the good of mankind. Because the Father in heaven isn't telling his son to suffer for no reason. He is the great sacrifice that takes away the guilt and the consequences of human sin. It is an act of salvation. In fact, what he's going to accomplish, apart from that, there is no salvation for human beings. So there's nothing capricious or arbitrary about what God is doing. He always acts purposefully, and in the suffering of Christ, he's actually expressing this incredible love. This, the Bible actually uses the word mega love, you know, the Greek word mega. God has this mega love towards sinners and rebels, and he wants to restore them to himself and save them. So he's making sure of the salvation of all who repent and believe in the Son, the Savior King, by sending his Son to die in their place for their sins. That's for us. So God the Son comes to earth, not for a visit, but to lay down his perfect holy life as a holy sacrifice for the sins of the world. He volunteered to do that. 
That's how great his love is. And that's our model for living as God wants those who belong to him, Christians, to live. Lord, what can I do for you? That is the big question to ask every single day. And what else matters? I mean, really, in the big picture. So we have Jesus' words in verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Three commands there. Deny, take, follow. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. The main thing is to follow. The other two things are how you do that or what you need to do to follow. What must I do to follow Jesus? It starts with deny yourself. You can't take up the cross. You can't follow Jesus until you deny yourself. That's how skewed we are. That's how bent we are. That's how off kilter we are. We can't follow ourselves and our own heart's desire and follow him. We've got to deny ourselves in a very significant way to even begin to follow him. So it starts with denying ourselves. There's a Christian writer from the first half of the 20th century. He's named Arthur Pink, like the color pink. And he has some really helpful thoughts about this. So I'm going to share a lot of things or ideas that he brought forth in looking at these words because I think he really has it nailed. People don't read Arthur Pink anymore. Walter does. Where's Walter? He's a, he reads Pink. Yeah, he reads Pink. So we'll call this the Pink Sermon, okay? But um, make sure, you, well, we won't call it that in print, but um, we'll call it that just for today. But he says, and I think he's totally correct, that we should not think of deny yourself as self-denial. He says, don't think of deny yourself as self-denial. Those are two different things. And I think he's right. Denying yourself includes self-denial, but that's not the essence of it. So he's saying, get the essence right. Self-denial means what? Giving up things, right? Giving up things that appeal to us, like, like at Lent, right? What do people do? They, uh, I'm not going to eat ice cream for Lent, or what? something like that. Just I'm denying myself, that kind of a thing. It's very common for churches and well, not anymore, but in most of American history, um, churches required members to not do certain things. You, couldn't, you were not to go to the theater, to the drama. You were not to play cards. You were not to go to dances. The Methodist church had this really strict, it was called the, the Book of Discipline. That sounds rough already, right? And, but every family had the Book of Discipline, and you were supposed to follow these things and not go. Never go to the movies. I mean, all of that. When the movie started, they were, the Methodists did not go. The Baptist college I went to had those very same rules. No movies, no playing cards, and Uno was okay, but not, <laughs> not a deck of cards that had the traditional, you know, kings and queens. You couldn't have one of those decks. Now, there were reasons for those. No dancing either. That was, that was a big one. And there were reasons for these rules. There were elements in all of those things. All of those things have elements that could lead somebody in a sinful direction, right? Deck of cards, you might start gambling. Go dancing, you might become lascivious and wild and crazy. Um, go to the movies and somebody might set a bad example for you and those kind of things. So it was thought best not to get near them. And now it's debatable whether that's a good idea or not, the, uh, whether that was wise or not. But those are all forms of self-denial. And of course, 
Christians should have high standards for themselves and deny themselves. So I love movies. Anybody knows about my background? I, I went to film school, so I kind of had this attraction, which made that college really hard to go to. But um, I enjoy movies that honor God's moral perspective on the universe. If they don't do that, I'm not interested. But, and I like dancing with my wife. <laughs> And I'm not tempted to gamble. So somewhere in my house, in a drawer somewhere, there's actually what deck of those forbidden cards. Just in case a rummy tournament breaks out or something, which never happens anymore. So I don't deny myself, just for the sake of denial, honorable pleasures. Let me put it like that. But I don't want them to rule my life either. Because the Lord has to come first in all things, right? And of course, there are aspects of self-denial that are simply matters of scriptural holiness, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 7, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Now, there's a lot of denial in that, things we have to say no to in our lives. Holiness, personal holiness is commanded for all believers. You shall be holy for I am holy. God says that way back in the Old Testament. It's repeated in the New Testament. Jesus said you are to be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, that's, our, that's what we're striving for. To be holy, the word holy itself actually means to be set apart. So yeah, there's things we don't participate in, right? Different. Set apart from what? Whatever displeases God. We set ourselves apart from that. That's pretty simple. Christians are obligated to do that. And that involves self-denial. If our body or our heart craves certain things that displease Him, we have to deny ourselves those things. So obviously we are to be set apart from all sin. We, we don't we don't want to embrace what Jesus died for, if that is a simple way to understand it. So lines have to be drawn. For example, in the early church, the, the church fathers forbade Christians from attending gladiator shows. Now, what's wrong with a gladiator show? Because murder is not an appropriate entertainment for Christian people. It was very entertaining. Uh, it was big. It was everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. It was made a lot of money. L big productions were put on to have. Gladiators were like movie stars today. People loved them. They scraped their names on the walls. They adored them. They worshiped them. Top killers were like movie stars. But murder for fun is just something Christians shouldn't be involved with. We're not supposed to enjoy. And there were believers, and there's records of believers who had a gladiator addiction. I mean, that, you know, people today have pornographic addictions, many people. But in those days, people had gladiator addictions, too, because it was so thrilling. It's like, it's like you know, some of your husbands in football season, right? It was like, you just say, hey, we're just not going to watch football this year. <laughs> Withdrawal, right? So people were so caught up with the thrill of murder as entertainment that it was hard for them to break that habit. That was true. The church also forbade going to the Roman theater because it was so licentious and so immodest, promoting sexual immorality and nothing like what's on television today. I mean, it wasn't that bad. But 
It's interesting how in our, our post-Christian culture, we go right back to the very wretched sort of displays and things they were doing in the ancient pagan world. I, but, but we even exceed them in their brazenness. I don't think they would, would have even conceived of the things we watch. I was listening to a, well, I read a little article from a, a, a podcaster, this Christian conservative guy who is just an absolute devotee of this fantasy show, Game of Thrones, which I've never seen. And he said, you know, it really exploits women by stripping them naked and making them do these horrible things. It totally appeals to the lusts of viewers, and I love it. And he specifically said, I really enjoy those women when they do that to them. Now, this is a, this is a conservative Christian commentator kind of guy. That's not exactly how holiness works. To, um, in fact, it's sort of the opposite. And he said, it's exploitation. This is exploiting, and, but I really enjoy it. So Christians are not supposed to approve of the exploitation of people, human beings. Christians are actually required by Scripture to abstain from evil, and I think we all agree that exploitation is evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So if this guy who delights in seeing women debased, and he actually said he enjoys it, if he lived in the days of the Roman Empire, that he would have been excommunicated from the church for, for that, for um, participating in that. And I actually kind of appreciate the fact that he's honest about it, because I think most people would say, oh, it's art, you know, and he goes, well, that's not art. They just throw it in there totally to exploit women and, and pervert, perverted people in the audience, of whom he is one, you know, he says. So he's not pretending it's not exploitation. He says it is exploitation. And he's in, he's in the art, so he knows that. He just likes it like many modern Christians don't have a passion for holiness. So that's a problem. So self-denial at some point is like really important. God is holy. So naturally, it is necessary for Christians to avoid being involved in idolatry, murder, and sexual exploitation. Those are the things we're not supposed to be involved in, amongst other things. So obviously, personal holiness involves self-denial, right? But I want to see it. Everybody's seeing it. And... Um, those gladiators are just great. But you've got to just kind of let certain things go. So, but I think Pink is right that self-denial is not the main thing Jesus ha has in mind here. He's right when he says mere self-denial can lead to pride. Because you kind of credit yourself for giving up more things than your friends, you know? Well, I don't play with, I don't have a deck of cards. You've got a deck of cards. I'm a better Christian than you, that kind of thing, you know. And that's exactly what Jesus was blasting the Pharisees for, having this sort of self-righteous, puritanical view of things where they thought they were better than other people. Um, he hammered them for that. Paul says in Colossians 2.18, he, he warns the church, he says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement. And he goes through other things, but this sort of aggressive humiliation and, you know, he says they're inflated without cause by their fleshly minds. You know, the sort of self-tormenting kind of stuff. Part of religious deception is this inflated fleshly mind that boasts in self-denial and um, tormenting oneself, that kind of thing. So let's look really closely at what Jesus actually says here. It's not self-denial, it's denying self. And there's a really big difference, right? Self-denial is me denying myself things that I might be drawn to. Like I said, when it comes to sin, we should practice self-denial. But dying to self 
is at the root of sin. It's much deeper. Because if we don't deny ourselves, we are exalting ourselves. Think about Peter. Above God's interests. He has interests. If we don't deny ourselves, we are exalting ourselves above his interest and putting ourselves as more important than God's interest. That's what, that's what he's talking about. So dying to self is a much deeper thing. Here's what Pink actually says about it. He says, it means ceasing to insist upon my own rights. It means repudiating self itself. It means ceasing to consider our own comforts, our own ease, our own pleasure, our own aggrandizement, our own benefits. It means being done with self. It means, beloved, saying with the apostle, for me to live is, what, what's the Bible say? Christ. For to me to live is Christ, not self. For me to live is to obey Christ, to serve Christ, to honor Christ, to spend myself for him. That is what it means, he says. He's exactly right. That's what Jesus is telling us. So much of contemporary Christianity is geared to focusing my mind and my heart on myself and the benefits that accrue to me by being a Christian. Almost as if God exists for me. You certainly can turn on Christian television and that's the message. I'm the center of the world and God just loves me and can't wait to spend time with me like he needs me because I'm so wonderful. Well, if that's true, why is Jesus telling me to deny myself? See, they're not the same message, are they? God does not need me uh, his love for me is more real and more substantive than I will ever really grasp while I'm in this world. But it's not about how lovable I am to him. It's about how great his love is for me who does not deserve it. When you sing that song, Amazing Grace, that's how you should sing it, knowing that that's true. He saved a wretch like me. I know some people have been really roughly handled by the world and they have a very poor self-image. It can be really crippling, kind of working through life with that. Some people have a very good self-image, too good, insufferably good. Both problems are actually solved and everything in between by denying ourselves because we're just not that important. We turn from self to Christ and he it becomes everything if I deny myself and live for Christ my self image becomes less important if I start to move away from me being the center of my thoughts and I turn my mind to the Savior and let him become the center of my thoughts he's my king who gave his life for me I'm probably going to be less depressed less stressed less sad Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said about humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And I think he's right. If I live to serve Jesus, my self-evaluation is going to come only in the terms of how I'm doing that. How, how well am I living for him? Not whether people like me or admire me or 
flock to me personally or anything like that because that just doesn't matter. All that matters is him and am I serving him. And that's something I can work on for myself. There's so many versions of self, you know, we're all got our own thing going on. So I kind of talked about two ends of the spectrum there. The person has a really poor self-image and the, the person who's insufferably pr- uh, pleased with themselves. But all of those people there and everybody in between has to deny self. This message is for all of us. Denying oneself is really just having a, a God-centered view of your place in the world, your purpose in the world. So here's the thing. Here's what you should know. You are wonderfully made in the image of God, and you are a wretched sinner. You have marred that image. He loves you so much, he saved you at great cost. And so you belong to him and joyfully give way to God in all things. That's how you live the Christian life, understanding that and practicing that. In relation to other people, you are Christ's ambassador to them. You represent him to other people. So deny yourself doesn't mean not bathing and not brushing your teeth or sitting on a pile of ashes or anything like that because that doesn't represent him very well. I couldn't even talk to that guy. (laughs) It also means not showing off and flaunting yourself because that doesn't represent the humility that an ambassador of Jesus should have as well, right? Have you ever seriously thought about the reason for Paul's advice to Christian women about how they dress? I want to focus on this. It's okay, ladies, just hang on for a second. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, it, it, he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Well, what does that mean? Modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So he doesn't say dress in a burlap sack or a burqa or anything like that. He, he, but modestly means, actually it means, that's a really interesting word. It actually kind of means bashful or with shame in mind, like, like reverent. or um, It's the opposite of brazen, I guess is the way to say it. Discreetly means with sound judgment and sobriety and self-control and those kind of things. Roman women back in the first century, they dressed to the nines. I mean, they really looked good, especially their hair. That's why he mentions that. Roman statuary, when we were touring around through Turkey and looking at all these museums for all that stuff, these incredibly beautiful statues from the first century and that era, the women's hair, you wanted to see them come to life just to see how they did their hair because it was just incredible, all this stuff they incredibly amazing coiffers. Of course, they had slaves working on them for hours to do all this just to come out, you know. And, but they put all this finery in their hair, pins, pearls, gold, all these really fancy things. Like, it's stunning. It, just the statue is stunning, you know. You wonder what they really look like in person. But what does it convey? Does it convey a woman saved by grace, a sinner saved by grace, a representative of the Savior who humbled himself? Or, do, or is it, look how fabulous I am? I mean, that's what he's talking about. Denying yourself is, is doing all things to the honor of Christ. That's what it is. So it's not self-aggrandizing. It's not boastful. We all have an element of vanity, right? But denying self is, is just putting that aside for something much higher. 
much higher, representing Jesus to the world. That's our calling. That's why we exist. That means not being outlandish, not being show-offish, or overly wretched or dirty either. We want our faith and character, the thing to be noticed by people so that Christ might be glorified. And that means being honest about our weaknesses and our failings as well. So denying ourselves is to mentally put ourselves aside and to diminish ourselves in terms of our own importance. In other words, to live like Jesus lived because that's what he did. Now, that means doing something after we deny ourselves. Verse 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So take up your cross. That's the other big thing here. Luke's gospel has Jesus say, take up your cross daily. So this isn't, oh, I can do that on Saturday, or I'll do that someday. It's every day you've got to take up a cross. So the cross is actually a, a principle for Christian living. There's a, there's a dying that takes place. A cross in those days meant only one thing, crucifixion, to death. Arthur Pink said it like this, the life of discipleship begins with self-renunciation and it continues by self-mortification. We don't use that word mortify much anymore. But you know that word mort, morte. Nardo muerto. <laughs> Um, it means to die, right? Death. So Christians all through history, we don't, I don't even hear people talk that way anymore, but Christians are supposed to mortify their flesh. They're supposed to kill their sin. Modern Christians, I, I should say American Christians, just don't use those terms anymore, but that's exactly what it is. Taking up a cross means you're killing something. And since you're the one shouldering the cross, you're the one on the way to crucifixion. And too often we feed our flesh and we're supposed to mortify our flesh, not by starving ourselves or flailing ourselves, but by picking up this daily cross of denying ourselves. Remember, these words came after Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about his dying. Protect yourself, Jesus. Don't take unnecessary risks. Don't do it. And in answer to that, Jesus is saying, and this is part of that whole sequence of events there, Jesus is saying to him, die to yourself. You have your mind set on man's interest, not God's interest. Die to the man's interest part. Make your life count for more than accumulating pleasures. It's not about you. And Arthur Pink says, I think with perfect theological precision, mediatorially, what a big word. How many, how many syllables are in media? That means the go-between between man and God. That's who Christ was, the one mediator, the Bible says. Mediatorially, the cross of Christ stands alone. Only he could be the mediator. But experimentally, and that's how people used to talk about our own personal experience, it is shared by all who enter into eternal life. In other words, the cross belongs to all of us as we the way we conduct our lives. Only Christ is the mediator, but we take up a cross to be like him in his self-denial and his service towards the Lord, willing to suffer for him. He points out that we often speak of crosses. This is how people talk about it, right? Um, we talk about bearing a cross as something that happens to us, right? Don't we do that? Difficulties in life, trials, that, that's a cross that 
he must bear. Right? Like when you're sick or some horrible thing happens. We talked a lot about just terrible things this morning in prayer time, and those are crosses people bear. And, um, but that's not what Jesus is really talking about here. Those are great trials and difficulties, obviously. But the verb here is very active. It's not what falls on us. It's what we pick up. Pick up your cross. So it's different than just a trial coming upon you. We choose the daily cross. We bend over and pick it up and shoulder it. Christ took up the cross voluntarily, and we have to do it voluntarily as well. So what's the primary meaning of it? Well, Pink throws out these couple ideas. He says, first, it's the hatred of the world. That's the first thing you're picking up the cross to bear. The world will not like you as a holy person. It's never been popular to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Well, you know, there used to be society was so church-going and Christianity was such a dominant part of our culture. You know what, you know what happens when a real Christian is in a moral society? They're hated because they love sinners. And a moral, fleshly society is proud and pharisaical and prudish and, and disdains the lowly sinners. But in that society, the Christian goes to the sinner and loves them, and the, the proper people are, oh, how can you do that? So that's, that's what that kind of world is like. In decadent, immoral societies, like ours, they don't approve of Christians because Christians say what you're doing is an offense to God, and people hate them for saying that. So we will never have the world's approval no matter what the conditions of the world around us are like. So don't expect it. But I'm a wonderful guy. Well, Jesus was a much more wonderful guy than you are. And he was hated. He was hated. So a Christian to the world is a fool. And they're a fool for a variety of reasons. The real reason underneath it all is that we remind the world that they're accountable to a just, holy, and righteous God. People want a much more manageable deity than that. So they invent their own. And when we bring up the God who is there and what he's like, they hate him. It makes sense. Rebels have a visceral reaction to people who love the king, right? Oh, I think the king's great. We're going to kill that king. How can you be on his side? There's a whole issue of Voice of the Martyrs, the latest issue of that. The whole issue was dedicated to India this week. And the national government now, currently, it's kind of a new thing, last few years, is full of Hindu nationalists now, and they persecute Christians. That's why it's become much more open to kill Christians in India these days. And, it's, and after reading through this whole issue... I, I saw online like yesterday or the day before yesterday there was an article about one of the leading members of this party very highly placed person in this Hindu party he said we're going to have to sterilize all the Christians and Muslims now because there's too many of them because Hinduism fell below 80% of the population it's only 79% of the population so now they're really worried about unity we're going to have to sterilize the Christians so we don't have this problem. 
In that culture, the hatred of Christians is to preserve unity. In American culture, the hatred of Christians is to preserve unity as well. Unity over progressive sexuality. That's, that's the thing. That's the test of all human decency in our culture. Anyone who stands against that is a corrupt, evil, hateful human being. And we are in their way. It's really quite interesting to watch how very large corporations, all the super big ones, and especially those that control media, social media and stuff like that, along with universities and many politicians, are moving very rapidly to delegitimize any beliefs that are contrary to the current claims of sexual identities. And even to the point of criminalizing speech or what they call deplatforming, you know, just taking you away so nobody will know you exist. I've never seen anything like it. And if you, think it's, if you think it's bad to take children like a little girl that likes to play with trucks and start pumping her full of chemicals and things like that to change so her body won't grow into a woman, if you think that's just a bad idea, you are hateful, evil, corrupt, monstrous. But, so whether it's superstitious Hindu, idolatrous Hindu leaders or, or Western kind of insane progressive people. Faithfulness to Christ puts you on the list of undesirable humans. And that's, you've got to be ready for that. That's just it. That's part of, the, that's part of what it is to follow Christ. If you read the latter part of John chapter 15, you can see that. We read that earlier in the service today. This I command you, that you love one another. That's our job. If the world hates you, you know it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Jesus says, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Seven times in that little brief section we read earlier this morning, he uses the word hate. And it's not from us. It's toward us. That's a cross you have to pick up. There's another aspect of that cross, and that is the voluntary surrender of your will. We've already kind of hinted on that. John 10, 17, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. So the cross really was the last request of the Father to the Son. And the son voluntarily complied with his request. That's why he came. And so must we. We must voluntarily take it up. Here's what Arthur Pink says again. The obedience of Christ should be the obedience of the Christian. Voluntary, not compulsory. Continuous, faithful, without any reserve, unto death. The cross then stands for obedience, consecration, surrender, a life placed at the disposal of God. He's got it. Here's how John the Apostle said it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is what we ought to do. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's scripture. Laying down your life for the brethren. That's not referring to the that's not referring to the day the anti-Christians come knocking on your door to take you away. It's how you live every single day. 
It's hard for some people to just show up for church, you know, but Christian discipleship is laying down your life for the people of God. Loving them, serving them, praying for them, praying with them, being there for them. This is where life is. Whoever wishes to save his life, verse 25, Matthew 16, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to find a satisfying, worthwhile life? Take up a cross and let self go and put everything in the perspective of eternity and the purposes and plans of God. Just think about the value of a human soul. Verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then will repay every man according to his deeds. So the primary reality of life in a fallen world, a cursed world, is not to build happiness here. That's not the primary thing we're about. If you have happiness, great. If you got stuff, great. But the primary reality is to serve God in his plan of redemption. Because judgment is coming, Jesus says. And our lives, our, our time, our resources really need to be placed in people The soul of a human being made in the image of God is way more valuable than the entire gross national product of the entire world. There's a day of reckoning. You you can die to self and help people find salvation or you can sit it out and just declare your life kind of an opportunity lost. Which way do you want to go? Well, which way is our Savior commanding us to go? The call to take up the cross is not to turn from being a nice guy that everybody likes into a mean Bible thumper. It's just a call to be authentically Christian every day, to live for Jesus, to care about the souls of human beings who are destined for eternity somewhere. Even Even if the cost of doing that is very great, we're to shoulder that responsibility. It's not a call to change who you are, your personality, It's a call to let your God-given personality shine for Christ, however he made you. It's not a call to not be you anymore, but it is a call for the redeemed you to pick up that cross and follow. I'll go where you take me. Let me just close with this thought. Yesterday, a friend of mine, a pastor, Carl Hargrove, is a good guy. He, He... posted a little thing. He said, what is the alternative to the prosperity gospel in 50 words or less? So, of course, a bunch of pastor guys are jumping in there with their little thoughts. You know what the prosperity gospel is, right? It's the opposite of everything Jesus says right here. The absolute opposite. It's about loving yourself, serving yourself, your best life now. What is the alternative to that in 50 words or less? So, Mike Riccardi, who's a pastor down at Grace Community Church, wrote this. The alternative to the prosperity gospel is soul-satisfying communion with Jesus whose glory is so sweet that we can lose everything in this world and call it gain because we gain him. Can't say it any better than that. (laughs) Let's pray. Oh, great king, the, the world has so many diversions. So much to occupy our hearts, our minds, our activities. Let us be mindful of your calling, of what matters most, and give ourselves to you to enjoy 
soul-satisfying communion with you and being willing to lose everything in this world because we have you. We've gained the greatest prize, which is you yourself. Lord Jesus, we ask you to give us grace to do this every day in your name. Amen.